Welcome to the Arbitration Conversation with Amy Schmitz. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Conversation. I'm very pleased, very excited to talk with John Allen Clark Sr. He has been an arbitrator and mediator since 1992. He's been appointed arbitrator in more than 700 administered and non-administered arbitrations. That's amazing, 700. Um, domestic and, and international. He is a fellow of the College of Commercial Arbitrators and a fellow, a chartered arbitrator of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, a fellow of the Texas Bar College and editor of the Arbitration Newsletter. I am so pleased to have him here. I mean, the truth is he's been arbitrating for so long and just is so knowledgeable. I just, I, John, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I'm enjoying the opportunity to visit with you. You know, I, I was working hard to make this happen because I know that you have so much wisdom to share. And so I really wanted this episode to focus on lessons learned, you know, kind of looking back and thinking about all these years, um, 30 years of arbitration, you know, what are the big lessons, the big takeaways that we can share with other arbitrators and with students? Oh, I've uh, as I thought about this and and thinking and, and sort of preparing for today and this conversation, uh, I just kept noting things, and I'm almost embarrassed with the number of lessons I've learned, which maybe reflects. I didn't know anything when I started in 1992 as an arbitrator. So as you think of like the biggest, well, yeah, that's a long time. I mean, and, and I, and even maybe let's take a step back. As you mentioned that I was thinking, what brought you to arbitration? Because, you know, in those days, in the beginning, it was kind of a very limited area and now everything involves arbitration but so as you kind of started to get into arbitration um was there any kind of a journey or was there any moment that you thought hey this is something i'd like to do yeah i uh, practiced uh, in a small firm uh, in uh, abilene texas after my graduation from the university of texas law school for five years and then i became general counsel of a oil refining and marketing company uh, with a refinery in uh, on the Mississippi River in Louisiana for another seven years. And uh, then I was spent two years with just a single client uh, during the very uh, busy uh, real estate boom in the North Texas, uh, doing nothing but working for that particular client. Uh, in real estate transactions. And then I joined our law firm here in 1986. And uh, the law firm's in Fort Worth, but I had practiced in Abilene. I had uh, practiced uh, in the office of my client in uh, Dallas. And uh, then uh, because the market changed in real estate in North Texas, I joined this law firm in Fort Worth, and I'd never practiced law in Fort Worth at that point. And one of the things that I thought might be a good way to really learn more quickly uh, about a lot of lawyers and get to know a lot of lawyers in Fort Worth was to become uh, a mediator. And um, I did that, got the required training under 
Texas uh, procedures. And um, probably a year or so into that, um, I just, uh, one of the partner, one of my partners in the law firm was doing quite a bit of arbitration and said, you should uh, join or get admitted to one of the Amer American Arbitration Association panels. So I did. It wasn't hard to do in those days. And um, it just uh, sort of took off from there. So, and then you kind of go from mediation to arbitration, and now you look back, right? And you look back and you think about all that. And I love the fact that you were kind of making a list. So you mentioned that. Um, what were some of the top things you thought of when you thought, hey, these were lessons learned? Well, the um, uh, probably the most important thing, if I had to rank it, uh, would be the uh, absolute necessity for the good arbitrator to be disciplined, uh, especially with regard to stream of consciousness kinds of remarks and um, it, during arbitration proceedings or, or hearings, uh, the uh, tendency to just have sort of a free flowing discussions between the arbitrator and the parties and the advocates sometimes can really have unintended consequences. And um, even when I work with panel in panels of arbitration arbitrators, I uh, observe uh, the tendency of everybody in the proceeding to become too relaxed, not, not in terms of it being uh, something different from litigation, but in terms of it being uh, more disciplined uh, conversations and statements that one hasn't thought through what could this trigger to take this uh, dispute in a direction that uh, the arbitrator never intended, and in most cases, even the parties never intended. So that disciplined, uh, restrained uh, statements made by the arbitrator, I think, are uh, has been a major lesson for me over these years. That is such an excellent point. You know, I think all too often it seems easy to kind of state whatever you're saying, what you feel. Um, but you have to be careful as an arbitrator. I love that. I mean, it's so important. Um, really a good lesson learned, number one, and most definitely stay disciplined. What would you say next? Uh, really an offshoot of that observation would be in the writing of orders, and especially in the drafting of arbitration awards, the, uh, even though there's a caveat to that, less is better. And uh, I've learned through the years uh, to keep down misunderstandings uh, and misinterpretations by being as succinct as possible. I'm uh, very insistent on writing all of my own orders, even though some lazy arbitrators let case managers do some of that writing for them, which I find uh, really uh, unfortunate. 
And then in writing the award, even in this age of reasoned awards and all of the discussion uh, that has gone on, good discussion about how you draft a reasoned award, uh, I find some arbitrators uh, do stream of consciousness writing. And um, it just, it, it makes for unwieldy and again, uh, unexpected interpretations that can arise with uh, awards that have not been uh, written with, with some discipline and some restraint. Yeah, that actually kind of worries me when I hear, because I do believe that arbitrators should, must, <laughs> in my view, write their awards on their, I mean, that's worrisome if people don't. So I like that number two is to really make sure that you're being very thoughtful and careful in the award that you write. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I'm also, uh, probably another takeaway has been, uh, all these years, I've learned how important for the process is the timeliness of orders. I love I that. I try to write my uh, interim orders the day of the hearing, but never later than the next day. And that's usually only because we're at the end of a work day or the end of an evening uh, before I can get to it the next day. But timeliness of orders and of course, fortunately, in most uh, arbitral institution rules, we've got some good time restraints on getting awards out. But uh, if awards are not and orders are not paid attention to immediately after the hearings are concluded, um, they tend to get away from us. Yeah, I think timeliness, number three, so important for every aspect, the orders, as well as the, the awards are one thing, but also the orders, just making sure that you're getting back to people and being very timely. I, I really believe that. So I think you owe it. You owe it to the parties. I do too. And um, I really work at that, uh, getting orders uh, out. And, and uh, I think it also makes the advocates uh, appreciate or understand uh, the orders better if the hearing or the conference is fresh in yep. their minds as well. I agree. I agree. So what do we have for number four? <laughs> number four has come over. It's been gradual because of a, a sort of an urban myth uh, that has arisen in arbitration. That myth being that, uh, uh, the arbitration process belongs to the parties. And uh, that said as an exclusive uh, statement or a complete statement, uh, I've come to believe is incorrect. Uh, the process is everybody's process. And uh, that, that uh, failure to manage the process uh, by the arbitrator uh, and, and to um, get and pay attention uh, to the deadlines uh, that have been put in uh, scheduling orders to me is, is, is really important. So 
I've really come in my own lessons learned to uh, view the process as, yes, it's a process for all the stakeholders, but it's also my process. And I've really got to own it rather than viewing it as what I could tell uh, fellow arbitrators and advocates. Uh, arbitration is not a day at the spa and it's not a walk in the park. It's a serious uh, process that takes everybody's uh, attention and participation. Yeah, I like that. It also means that you're taking ownership and responsibility as an arbitrator to make sure that you're taking care of things and not to sort of pawn it off on the parties and say, that's oh, their fault. No, it's up to the arbitrator to make sure it runs efficiently and fairly. Mm -hmm. I really see that in... Um... Uh, initial scheduling uh, orders. And um, uh, we've got one major arbitral institution that has a really, really bad habit of uh, sending out form scheduling orders with blanks before the initial scheduling conference and encourages the party's advocates to fill in the blanks. And so I get uh, situations where uh, but prior to the initial scheduling conference, uh, the lawyers have scheduled the final hearing a year, a year and a half. I've even had it as long as two years out uh, for the final arbitration, simply because the lawyers were given the freedom, opportunity, and even encouragement. Uh, and so I've got to talk these advocates off the ledge uh, <laughs> to get them back to this is something that ought to happen a lot yeah. quicker than a yeah. year. It ought to happen a lot. Right. Quicker. I mean, you're paying for efficiency. You need to think about that. Yeah, yes. absolutely. No, and so I, do, I, I always have a checklist at an, at an initial uh, scheduling conference, but it's my checklist. Right. I don't even share it. I mean, I don't mind sharing it, but I don't want to share it because it causes relaxation, especially the orders that have blanks. Yeah. And, and I, I get that. I've got a few case managers that uh, I work with a lot, and uh, one or two of them have now finally come over to my side that, <laughs> no, 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 don't send that uh, template. I'll be happy to receive it, happy for you to, if you need it, I, if you want to send it to me. I don't need it. I've got a 53-item checklist uh, that I work off of. And, uh, but, but it's, it's uh, there are just so many ways that the process uh, runs off the rails. Right. So I know you've got a list there and I know we've, Got like a hard stop. So I'm like, I want to hear the rest. I'm so excited to hear like what else he's got on his list. I want you to, you know, share it with us. Well, another big takeaway, uh, again, discouraged in some uh, arbitral institutions uh, is spend the time up front, hopefully before the initial scheduling conference in uh, reading uh, the papers, 
and in learning everything you can learn about the dispute. All kinds of issues get jump out at the experienced arbitrator who really uh, at least has studied carefully the demand, if one exists, and usually it does, and the answering statement. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about that, though, because if you're in a consumer case and you know that it's very, you're not getting paid for your time, and so it's really hard, how do you get arbitrators in those cases to spend a lot of time on it up front when they know that they that's basically pro bono? Well, especially if they are habitually lazy arbitrators. I don't mean that critically, but I'm descriptively. Uh, they rely on the case manager to remind them. Uh, they don't necessarily even schedule deadlines. Uh, they wait till the dispute comes to them rather than going to the dispute. And I do get uh, consumer uh, cases, mainly because if I don't do the consumer cases, I don't uh, enjoy the friendship of my case managers. Mm -hmm. And right. so it's a part of my civic duty, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. to think. And so I still try to understand the dispute. Yeah. I do quicker reading. I do uh, only read what I have to read to understand the dispute. But in most cases, the consumer disputes are are easy to understand. Now, you do get them, and I get them. But I also get case managers, the more complex they develop, to appreciate that uh, that's what's happening. And right. so if there is a way under the rules, I'll get some... Uh, I'll get some consideration in terms of how I'm going to get paid. But I do right. it regardless because I don't want to learn bad habits. Yeah. See, I think it's important as our we're lawyers, we have our ethical duties. And I feel like we should care about administration of justice, helping people get remedies. And um, I do quite a few where I am absolutely pro bono <laughs> for yes. what I'm doing. Right. And I, I appreciate that. And I want to do that because I think it's important as lawyers. Um, we have great power and understanding and knowing the law and I want to contribute in that way. So it's good to hear you kind of sharing that. Feeling. And one of the ways that I uh, assuage that problem for me uh, financially is just to remember uh, well, I've got a law practice going. Right, right. Even though maybe 70% of my time now is spent serving as an arbitrator, uh, I can find, and I've usually got enough arbitrations going, that I can cover uh, that contribution that I'm right. making. I used to not uh, manage my, uh, uh, my deposits. But even though I'm, uh, it's an arbitral institution administered arbitration, uh, I learned another lesson learned to stay uh, conscious of the financial deposit or the mm. deposit situation. That's it's, a new one. Okay, so how do you do that? So what I do, do you that do? because most, uh, well, many of uh, most of my arbitrations are AAA. Right. And AAA has a very transparent. Uh, way that they maintain the financial status of each arbitration in the website. 
And so my administrative assistant and I uh, stay, we periodically make sure we know the status of deposits. And then we request or remind the case manager deposits are needed. And uh, so, uh, and also we've got a, a section in the commercial arbitration rules. Uh, I think it's even in the uh, employment and construction rules, a whole rule now regarding non-payment of deposits that can permit the arbitrator to suspend, give notice of the situation without who has paid and who has not paid uh, to the parties. And then if nobody responds or there's no uh, attempt to correct the, or remedy the situation, uh, we've got a rule that allows us to uh, uh, terminate, uh, you know, without prejudice, but terminate the, the person. Wow. So I do, I spend a lot of time, not a lot, but but some significant time in every case managing my deposits. Mm, wow. Being so aware, I know. Manage is probably a heavy word, but right. being aware of my deposits. Okay. So, and next on the list, <laughs> I know you have a hard stop. So I'm like, I want to hear the rest. I'm so excited to hear all of them. Maybe we just need to like run right through them. <laughs> um. I think the uh, another thing I do that I've learned is I make decisions promptly. I try to be careful to be sure I get the decision teed up or, or get it clearly uh, identified. But once I'm confident uh, that I've got the question identified, even to the extent of sometimes uh, confirming with the advocates, is this the decision that is the linchpin to this dispute? Or maybe more than one. But once I've, I'm satisfied, I've got that decision uh, understood and teed up, I make the decision then. I don't ruminate. I don't uh, soak it. I don't go away and meditate by the lake. <laughs> I make the decision. And I do that in the toughest of and most difficult of cases. If you delay a decision, the more it, it continues to get delayed. That's the natural progression of delay in making the tough decisions. Right. So make the decision and make the decision as quickly as you've got the information that you yep. need. I agree with that. I'll tell you another thing I, I do. Um, I have, maybe it's just uh, age <laughs> or experience. I uh, have learned not to enjoy the sound of my own voice. Mm, I agree with that one. <laughs> uh, it's just incredible how much, uh, again, back to that point of the undisciplined uh, stream of consciousness, I call it. Uh, it happens even in award writing. Uh, uh, I've 
been on panels where we had to do emergency rescues from the person that took the initial laboring ore to draft had just gone on and on and on and on. Uh, sometimes it's trying to make it sound like a uh, an appellate opinion, mm-hmm. which an award is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then sometimes it's just the natural tendency or it's the inability to uh, be disciplined in in the, the drafting language. Right. I think if, I mean, nine times out of 10, you can make it half as long and twice as good. Yes. I think with any opinion, that is yes. my feeling. Yeah. Yes. hundred percent. That is so true. And it's so easy to lapse into explaining. <laughs> That's not the reasons. I, I do the reasons and I don't, and I'm always working with the reasons all the way through. Another lesson I've learned out of all of that is I write down, well, first of all, I keep very detailed notes in every arbitration on my laptop. Uh, My partners don't like for me to say it out loud, but I can keyboard quicker than any secretary we've got in the firm. They say, please don't let people know that. (laughs) (laughs) But I've I've done a lot of, uh, I had a prior career where I uh, did uh, a lot of uh, radio and television scripts for some things. Okay, and, that's really cool. That's like and, a whole other conversation, but anyway. And I learned to think uh, at the keyboard and, and to draft at the keyboard. And uh, so I keep very, very good notes. But in the midst of those notes, I will do a bold statement. It's a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis about an issue or a sub-issue or maybe even a fact, an evidentiary fact that I want to remember. And uh, But many times it's maybe this is what this is, mm-hmm. or maybe here is the solution or, or uh, answer to this dispute. And uh, excuse me. Uh, and and um, I will... Um, I will keep those kind of notes so that once I'm ready to do a reasoned award, I've got detailed notes from which I can easily pick uh, my reasons. Right, right. That's so helpful. I mean, yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny. I actually took typing in high school. So I'm also one of those people who can, I can type like no one's business. I took typing in high school and other than for the Latin, which I almost failed for two years, (laughs) um, uh, I've always said the best thing I learned in high school was the keyboard. Yep. Yeah, I'm so glad. Yeah, it's a good skill. Oh my gosh, I love this. Well, I know there's probably more on the list. Can we get any more? I know you have to go, but I really would love to hear. (laughs) Um, I think it's hard for, I've learned that it's hard for me to give the baby up after the award is issued. And there are a couple of problems that arise from that. One is I have to be very careful because I'm often tempted to tell war stories 
after it's all over. But even though I know I can't uh, disclose secrets and confidential information and blah, 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 it's, it's hard to really tell about uh, a dispute you've just finished resolving uh, without somebody recognizing something about it. It's just, and so I really work at, uh, it's over. When I issue that award, I'm functus officio. Mm. And, uh, and there are tendencies in, in some arbitrators to write themselves in for some other uh, imagined part of this dispute. Uh, if you... If the parties don't understand this part of my award, they may request an explanation from me, uh, you know, something of that nature, or uh, build in even a new issue that is suggested to the parties by the arbitrator, who even then very sometimes very politely and very with great sophistication says, you may want me to address this issue for you in the future, that kind of language. I get it a lot in mediation agreements, even though I try to do as few mediations as possible. I don't like to do mediation, even though I've done it since 1992 as well. Uh, I really prefer arbitration. So this, this business of shut it down, issue the award, uh, retain and protect the confidences, uh, especially if you've been in a, a protected health information issue or a, or a HIPAA uh, protection, but, but any kind of confidential protection. So I, uh, I, my lesson is put a lid on war stories. Hmm. That's good. Put a lid on war stories. And it's very difficult to do mm -hmm. that. And, and if you ever start telling a war story of a prior arbitration, uh, you're really running the risk that somebody is going to recognize the fact pattern. Yeah. You, yeah. You definitely have to be careful. You should never share those. Even in class as a professor, I'm, I do not share specifics. I never share anything that could even remotely be um, confidential. One of the things that I see in arbitrator training sessions uh, is it's very easy to slip into telling war stories uh, and telling them with some identifiable facts. Right. And I, uh, one of the reasons I go to arbitrator training and participate in arbitration, uh, the training of arbitrators is uh, I really want to hear how loose and I really want to hear even just attitudes because right. I'm still putting together panels uh, in cases. And uh, there are a lot of reasons that some of the best ways I learn about the peculiarities of arbitrators is going and listening. Wow. Uh, we good. all want to talk. We just want to especially if it's arbitrators uh, that get together. Right. Um, I think though, listening personally, I think listening is probably the most important skill we have as lawyers or arbitrators or any 
professional. I feel like listening is really what we have to work on. My uh, initial scheduling conference is nothing but a series of questions. Yep. Uh, I know what questions I want to ask. So I clearly take charge of that scheduling conference. And uh, I'm very proactive in it, but I'm proactive not with speeches, but <laughs> proactive with questions. And I make sure, uh, Mr. Claimant, uh, what's your response to this? Mr. Respondent, what's your response to this? And usually that's the advocates uh, speaking. And then that goes on all through the initial scheduling conference. Uh, uh, what's your response to this claimant? What's your response to the same thing, respondent? And I'm making notes and telling them I'm going to issue an order when all of this is over based on what I'm hearing and learning uh, from you. But I'm doing that without telling them uh, I'm in charge here and I'm going to get through this. Mm -hmm. You're going to get an order and we're going to follow it. Yep. And also I think showing them the respect because I've learned um, when you're really listening and you're acknowledging and you're hearing them, you're showing respect. And yes. I think that's important. I think it's deserved. It's important as part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm with you on all of this. I mean, I, every preliminary, the order has to come out that same day for me, mm -hmm. yeah. um, that same day. I don't ever even wait till the next day, literally the same day. Mm -hmm. I think they deserve that. They put time into the case and we as arbitrators, that's our job, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I really appreciate that you've said these things. I think it's wonderful, really good. Well, those are most of my questions. You know, um, and I have to say, like, this has been tremendous. I mean, I'm going to play this over and over myself. And I'm so excited that we will have people listening and students for sure, um, as well as practitioners. Um, thank you. I appreciate taking you went over the time. I took more time than you. <laughs> so okay. thank you on that. And yeah. I have to say thank you so much. I really appreciated this. Let me have one last comment. Ooh, I love that. Um, do never neglect the party's arbitration agreement. And the arbitration agreement, even uh, sometimes uh, the parties are not even aware that they have built in complex uh, phrases and clauses, they built in uh, conflicting concepts. Right. Yep. And uh, getting that, and in, and in many initial scheduling conferences, the advocates don't even have the arbitration agreement at hand. They probably never read it. I mean, <laughs> nine times. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> and uh, I uh, I had the one yesterday where uh, it became a private ad hoc arbitration uh, after an arbitral institution was asked to appoint the arbitrator or to administer the appointment, at, at the end of which clearly the rule or process was we'll have nothing else to do with it. But But even in it, 
the, the very I've had that happen twice now in the last week. Uh, very um, uh, experienced arbitration advocates uh, put over manage uh, and and uh, micromanage the process to the point that they get into trouble with how does all of this work together? And, and so yesterday in a major uh, dispute, uh, the parties had agreed in April of last year that the whole process, the whole arbitration would be conducted within 75 days of the signing of the agreement. And here we were a year and a half, well, yeah, over a year, year and a half, after they did this, they ignored the one in the, in the carrier contract, the arbitration clause, and wrote a new one they thought would be much better. But all it did was add additional complexity. And hmm. so knowing <laughs> that arbitration, and that's the first thing we do here, uh, my administrative assistant and I both know, okay, I've been appointed. Where's the clause? Yep, 100%. I'm actually a contracts professor. So like for me, that is, I start there. I always start with the contract. That is my like cardinal. I tell my students that day one of arbitration class, the book I have, I mean, everything is like, look at the contract. What does the contract say? So important. And I, yeah, it's kind of astounding how often people don't look at the contract. And, And just built build in per se violations right uh, 10a uh, one through four yeah yeah it's yeah. <laughs> anyway. oh, so oh my gosh you and i, I could talk that. all evening hey listen thank you thank you thank you this You're has been great. tremendous i really appreciate your time Glad we could talk and uh, wish you the best in what you're doing. Thank you for <laughs> all your contributions uh, to our profession. This podcast was brought to you by Arbitrate.com. For more information about Arbitrate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.arbitrate.com.